Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're finally out of the first chapter. You wondered if it would ever happen, and it has happened. So we're on to chapter 2 today. We'll focus on the first 10 verses. What Paul has done so far in this letter is really two big, broad things. Uh, he, he's told us that we have God's blessings. Right, Verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1 are really just an expanding and an enumerating and a celebrating of these spiritual blessings that belong to us in Jesus Christ. And so we have all these blessings of God and of His salvation. And then He's told us that we have God's power. That was really the focus of the verses we looked at last week, verses 15 through 23. In His prayer for the Ephesians, and by extension we would say that these prayers are relevant for us as followers of Jesus today. We have these incredible, rich resources of God's power at work in us and available to us for the living of the Christian life and and glorifying Him and fighting against sin and, and the devil and all the things that come our way. So we have God's blessings and we have God's power. And today, in our verses, He will tell us emphatically powerfully, unmistakably, that everything we have is by sheer grace. By sheer grace. It is God's doing, God's initiative, God's goodness and kindness that has given us all that we have. Why bring this up now? I think there's a certain logic to Paul's, uh, uh, the flow of thought here. Um, You see, if we have God's blessings and we have God's power, but we forget about grace, then we might be inclined to think, you know, well, maybe we we earned these things. Maybe we really were smart enough or or morally uh, good enough or close enough to the kingdom that God just sort of, you know, granted a little bit of leniency and and let us on in, right? And so now we have everything that's His. Maybe we begin to think that we, we earned this or somehow we're deserving of these blessings and this power that we have. And then maybe we'd actually might start to look at at others who don't have the same blessings in their lives or the same power available to them and think, you know, we're, we're maybe a little bit better than they are. And so I think it's important in Paul's mind for us to recognize not only the facts that we have these great spiritual blessings in Christ and that we have the resurrection power of God at work in us, but also to recognize the only reason we have those things in our lives is because of the grace of God. Let's look together at, at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. I'll read these aloud for us, and then we'll focus on them together for a few minutes. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In these ten verses, Paul tells us our spiritual biography. So if you're curious, what is, my, what is the story of my life? As heaven looks down on me and sees from start to finish the story of my life, here's your spiritual biography in three simple steps. You were dead. God made you alive. And you, your life is his. You were dead. God made you alive. And now your life is his. That's it in three simple statements. That is your spiritual biography, your life story. Let's look at that one piece at a time. You were dead. Verses 1 through 3 are pretty unpleasant to read. They do not paint a rosy picture of a human being apart from Christ. A fallen human being in this living in this world is stained by sin and so broken and corrupt that in fact we are spiritually dead spiritually dead you were dead people before god intervened and interrupted he expresses this deadness this spiritual death that we all were uh, victims of um, in in three particular ways number one you followed the world when you were spiritually dead, when you were separated from God, apart from Christ, you followed the world. Look at that in verse 2. He says, uh, the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. The world's values, the world's priorities, the world's systems of belief, the lies that the world would have us believe. This is what the, the air that we all breathe. Before faith in Christ, before God interrupted us and granted us grace, we followed the course of the world. We had no real other option. We believed the lies. We believed the systems of, of belief. We, we embraced the priorities of the world that says we should be strong and we should conquer and we should seek honor and reputation and we should get all that we can by whatever means possible right these are the these are the sort of values that that the world uh breathes and lives in and we all breathe of that air it's possible of course for christians to be unduly influenced by these things as well it's a, it's a regular danger for us as followers of jesus to to make sure that we are not buying the, the lies of the world and buying the systems of belief and the pr priorities and values that the world puts forward. They're distinctions that we need to make as followers of Jesus. And we can be wrongly influenced in the direction of the ways of the world, the course of this world. But in our spiritually dead condition, apart from Christ, we had no other option. This is the way that it is for all human beings apart from from Christ. We could only blindly follow the patterns and programs set forth for us by the world. So you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and that looked like you followed the world. You followed the world. Number two, you followed the devil. Might seem a little bit far-fetched, 
that's a little bit of an overstatement. No, I, yeah, okay, maybe I didn't believe all the right things, but I was a pretty decent guy beforehand, right? We might sort of let ourselves off easy here. But look at verse 2. He says, we were following the course of this world. And number two, we were following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air is a really interesting, unique phrase, really only used here in the Bible. And he's not speaking literally of the air, but of the realm, the spiritual realm where these spiritual powers and authorities exist. And we followed... Apart from Christ, we followed the prince, the ruler of that dark spiritual realm. And so Paul is telling us that there is a personal force behind the, the dark spiritual realities uh, in, our, in our world and, and around us, right? There is a personal uh, identity of this evil, and it is the devil. It's Satan. The Bible calls him the, the accuser, right? This is, this is uh, the personal power behind the evil in the spiritual realms. And we all followed him. You were following the prince of the power of the air. And he reminds us that even now, that being, the devil, is at work in the sons of disobedience. That is, those who have not obeyed the gospel, those who have not trusted in Christ for salvation. So Satan is even now at work, actively working in the hearts and minds and lives of those who are separated from Christ. I heard, I wish I could remember who I heard say it this way, but somebody said, everybody is being discipled by someone. If you're not being discipled actively by Jesus through his word, you are being discipled by the devil. And I think that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty eye-opening and kind of sobering thought, that those who are not following Christ, those who have not yielded their lives by faith to Christ, are being discipled by the devil. He's training them. He's teaching them. He's leading them toward what he thinks and wants us to think that real life looks like. And before Christ, apart from Christ, this is what people follow. This was your spiritual state. You followed the world. You followed the devil. And then thirdly, he tells us, you followed your own flesh. Look at verse 3. Among whom, that the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Because we're sinners, because we live in a fallen world and we've received the, the stain and brokenness of sin from our forefather Adam, we all have these broken, distorted, sinful desires and instincts and appetites. And apart from Christ, we just blindly followed these Desires. That's all that we could do without the sanctifying, restraining uh, power of God's Spirit and the new affections for God and His ways that, uh, that He imparted to us. We are simply slaves to the human impulses and appetites of our bodies and minds. This is what it means to be separated from Christ. You have no choice but to simply do what your desires lead you to do your appetites and impulses and instincts, we simply blindly follow them. 
Paul speaks in Philippians 3.19 of enemies of the cross, who he says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Your God is your belly. That means your appetites, not only literally physical appetites for food, but your fleshly, sinful desires are your God. And this was true of us apart from Christ. Before God intervened, interrupted by grace, you were dead. You were dead following the world, following the devil, following your own flesh. This is not a pretty picture. And in fact, the result of all of this, at the end of verse 3, is that you were on your way to eternal damnation. Look at the end of verse 3. We were by nature children of wrath. That means people who were destined to receive the wrath of God. We lived under His wrath by our very nature. That's who we were. That the, the very base of our identity was this sin that separated us from God and earned His just judgment. It's the fundamental condition of fallen humanity apart from Christ. Our very nature condemns us. We are under God's wrath. This is the reality. This was your reality before God saved you by His grace. This should cause us to do two things. Number one, look back with soberness and with godly grief on your life before Christ. Now, some of us came to faith when we were very young, and so the things I remember, like I was a child when I, when I first trusted in Christ, and so when I look back on my life, I don't have this very, like, kind of, you know, gross and crazy story of, well, I was involved in this and that other thing, because I was a little kid. But there are ways that my heart, even then, was so inclined toward myself and, and inclined against those that God had put in authority over me, like my parents or, or teachers, and inclined against Him. Those of you who came to faith a bit later in life may have a little bit more of a story to look back on and go, wow, this is the way that things were for me before I came to faith in Jesus Christ. My life was a mess. You can see the things that you longed for and pursued and, and followed and maybe following the world and following the devil and following the flesh, you can see, wow, yeah, I know what that looked like. I remember what that felt like. We should look back with soberness and, and, and a sense of sort of godly sorrow over the brokenness and the sin that characterized our lives before Christ. And secondly, we should look around. Look around us at those in our lives who are still in this condition. Every human being who would has not repented of his sin and trusted in Jesus Christ is in this condition right now under the wrath of God on the pathway that's destined for destruction and eternal damnation following the world following the devil following their flesh this is the reality for everybody who is apart from Christ so we should look around with compassion and with with, with longing for the, the salvation of those who we know who are still in this lost and spiritually dead condition. So the first step of your spiritual biography is you were dead. Most stories end right there. 
But praise God in His grace, the gospel is bigger than that, bigger than us, and so the story doesn't end there. Number two, God made you alive. God made you alive. Look at verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Your course toward destruction was interrupted by God's kindness. He points to us, he points us toward two great uh, realities, characteristics of God, his rich mercy and his great love. His rich mercy. Mercy is the withholding of punishment, the withholding of a consequence that I justly deserve. And he had a great love for us, which was more than mere warm affections. It, it expressed itself in action, in deeds of kindness. And he loved us even when we were dead. Look at that. Because of his being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. That reminds me of Romans 5.11 where Paul says that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were not lovely people. God didn't look down on us and go, man, I need Carlson on my team. He is so great. All I got to do is a little bit of tweaking. That's not what it took. And that's not what God saw. God saw a broken, rebellious sinner. God saw an enemy. And yet even then, he interrupted and intervened with grace. He made you alive. That's kind of a funny way in English to express the reality of resurrection. He brought you back to life. He gave you life when you were dead, when you had none. He raised you from the dead. He didn't merely give you a spiritual boost or a little bit of you know support. He's just kind of leaning and needs to be propped up a little bit. No, you were dead, buried under the ground, and God resuscitated you. God put life in you that wasn't there before and brought you to life. He's made you alive with Christ. Again, we look at the, we see the resurrection of Jesus himself and we remember the verses that we looked at last week that speak of the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power at work in us. That's what that's the reality here. The the power the resurrection power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, brought spiritual life to our dead souls. He made you alive with Christ. What else has He done for us? He's seated you in the heavens with Christ. Look at that. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He seated us with Him. And so again, if you look at the story of Jesus in His sinless life, and then in his death, and then his resurrection, and then his ascension and exaltation, and his current enthronement, all of those aspects, every step along that journey of Christ becomes our spiritual journey because of our union with him. The Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson su sort of summarizes all this this way. He says, if we are united to Christ, then we are united to him at all points of his activity on our behalf. We share in his death. We were baptized into his death. Paul says that in Romans chapter 6. 
We share in his resurrection. We are raised with him. We share in his ascension. We share in his heavenly session. That is the the, the rule, the enthronement and rule of him because he seated us in the heavenly places with him. Right? So he's placed us into... In Christ, he's placed us in the seat of authority, right? He's given us the, the standing uh, in the heavenly places, as it were, the, the spiritual authority, so that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And finally, we will share in his promised return. And then he, uh, he quotes uh, or refers to Colossians 3, 1 through 3, which says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. So when Christ returns, we will share in that. We will share in the glory of his return and appear with him. So every point of the journey that Jesus was on throughout his death and resurrection and ascension and his enthronement and then his coming return, Christians are united to him in each of those uh, aspects, each of those actions. And so in Christ, he's raised us. He's resurrected us. He's seated us with him in the heavens. He's given us new life. He's given us new future. He's given us new resources. All of this by sheer grace. And why? Why has he done all of these things? Why has he bestowed these riches on us? Excuse me. Look at verse 7. He tells us exactly why. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God intends to display something of himself, namely the riches of his grace. He intends to display his own glorious grace through kindness toward us. Through kindness toward us as we receive new life, as we receive forgiveness of sin, as we receive this new standing and status with Christ and in Christ, His kindness toward us displays and magnifies His grace. And so then Paul goes on in sort of a long parenthetical statement in verses 8 and 9 to talk about just how important it is for us to recognize that all of this is God's grace at work. It's all grace. Look at verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. By grace you have been saved. Why have we been saved? How have we been saved? By grace. That's it. If God were not rich in grace, if God had not chosen to lavish grace upon you, you would not be saved you would still be spiritually dead and destined for wrath. God, in His grace, has saved us. And this is more than merely having withheld punishment that we deserve, right? We were children of wrath by nature. We had punishment coming. We had His wrath coming to us, so we deserved it. And He didn't merely sort of block the punishment that was coming to us. That would have been mercy. He was rich in mercy, for sure. But more than that, he's lavished on us all of these great blessings. The spiritual life, the, 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 the eternal future that belong to Christ are now ours, all by grace. 
kids, think about this. Imagine what this might be like. Let's say your mom tells you that you need to clean your room. Everybody loves that instruction, right? And so your mom puts you in your room and she says, I see this mess here. I'm gonna give you 10 minutes. I've got a timer going. In 10 minutes, I'm gonna come back and this room had better be clean or there will be consequences. Now, I don't know if your mom spanks you or grounds you or whatever, but your mom says there's gonna be consequences here if I come back in 10 minutes and the room is not clean. And let's say that in that 10 minutes while she's gone, not only do you not clean the room, you actually decide to make an even bigger mess of it. And so you maybe take all of your toy boxes and, and dump them onto the floor and you take the drawers from your dresser and flip them over so there's just piles of clothes and toys and mess everywhere. Your mom comes back at the end of 10 minutes. What's she gonna say? What's she gonna think? How do you think she's gonna feel, right? You're expecting consequences if you're wise if you've learned right you're expecting this is not going to go too well but let's say that instead of getting a spanking or or being grounded let's say instead of that your mom says you know what let's go get ice cream let's go what what's your favorite place i'm going to get you the biggest ice cream i can find give me your favorite flavor we're going to get ice cream now instead now that sounds crazy right that sounds ridiculous that sounds like why in the world would a parent reward their child for this bad behavior, right? And we talk like that. We don't want to reinforce bad behavior. This is grace. This is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Instead of the destruction, the damnation, the eternal punishment that we deserve because of our sins, God instead gives us grace. He gives us life. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us a standing with him. He gives us an eternal hope to be in his presence forever, which is way better than ice cream. God has given us everything in spite of our disobedience and rebellion, in spite of our spiritual deadness. He has given us everything. This is grace. By grace, you have been saved. And then he says, this is a really important little phrase. He says, by grace, through faith. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. The relationship between grace and faith is really important as it applies to our salvation. So we need to recognize that the the power of salvation is not faith, it's grace. The power of salvation is God's grace. Faith is the, the vehicle. You're saved by grace through faith. There is no, truly speaking, there is no saving faith. There's no such thing as that. Because faith doesn't save anybody. Grace saves people. Grace is what saves sinners. Faith is merely uh, what applies the grace of the gospel to a sinner's heart. Benjamin Merkel has a, a, an analogy that, that's helpful here. Think, uh, 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 comparing it to um, uh, uh, a syringe and a life-saving medicine. So uh, grace applied to a sinner by faith is like life-saving medicine delivered to a sick person by a syringe. Right? The medicine is in the syringe and the needle delivers the medicine. Right? You would never say, man, I'm so thankful for that syringe. It saved my life, right? Uh, You would celebrate the medicine. Man, I'm so grateful for the medicine that overcame the disease. Nevertheless, 
without the syringe, the life-saving medicine could not be delivered into your system. And so the syringe is the vehicle which carries the life-saving power of the medicine into your body. And so it is with grace and faith. Faith does not save you. Grace saves you. The grace of God poured out in Christ saves you. But the way that that grace is applied to the heart of a sinner is through faith. It's through trusting what God has provided is sufficient. And then he tells us, as if we're not getting the idea already, this is not your own doing. What's not my own doing? The grace? Correct. The faith? Correct. None of it is your doing. It's all the work of God, not a result of works. All of this is from God. The whole complex of the, the grace of God poured out on a sinner and applied by faith, bringing spiritual life to a spiritually dead person, all of that is the gift of God, not by works. We didn't earn any of it. We didn't work for any of it. There was no, like, God's going to meet us halfway and we got to do the other half of it. This was all God. This is all His working in us. This saving grace is, uh, is the grounds of our justification before Him. That is our pardon from God for our sin. Because our salvation is achieved by grace that God provides and applied by faith, that God supplies, we can have a lasting and unswerving confidence in the finality of our salvation because it's His work from beginning to end. J.I. Packer says it this way, God's justifying decision is the judgment of the last day declaring where we shall spend eternity, brought forward into the present and pronounced here and now. So when a sinner is justified by God, it's as though he's taking that last day judgment pronouncement and declaring it right now. You are pardoned. He says, it is the last judgment that will ever be passed on our destiny. God will never go back on it, however much Satan may appeal against God's verdict. To be justified is to be eternally secure. Your salvation is God's work from beginning to end. Your justification, your pardon from sin is God's grace in your life. Start to finish. Why did he choose to save us in this way? By grace? Well, he tells us once again, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. God is committed to providing salvation and new life for sinners in such a way that no sinner gets to stand in the presence of God and say, man, look at me. Look how well I did. I made it. My spiritual resume is top notch. Nobody gets to do that in God's presence. The ones who try that are condemned. The ones who stand in God's presence justified are those who, like the the tax collector in Luke 18 say, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's those who recognize all of this is God's doing start to finish. God is interested in creating a system of salvation and creating for a people of himself where no human boasting is allowed and only God gets the glory and the honor and the credit and the praise for our salvation. 
Paul said, expands on this. I'm not going to read it to you right now, but you could bookmark 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, and expands on this very idea um, uh, about how God has chosen the foolish things of the world and the weak things of the world to shame the, those who are worldly speaking wise and, and strong so that nobody gets to boast in God's presence. So then he concludes that passage, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's where our boast should be. We won't boast in ourselves and our own smarts and, and, and morality. We boast in the Lord Jesus alone, what he accomplished for us and the grace of God poured out on us. So this should cause us to look up in wonder and thankfulness at God's incredible kindness. Look up with gratitude and praise. He made you alive. The final stage of your spiritual biography is your life is His. You belong to Him now. Look at verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are His workmanship. That is, we are something that He crafted and made and created. We're His masterpiece, if you will. He has made us and formed us in this way. He's made us a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Any man who is in Christ is a new creation. God has made us new. And He's made us new for what purpose? For good works that He's prepared beforehand. By the way, that means predestined. He's predestined good works for us to do. He has a way for you to live that he planned from before he even saved you, from before you were even born, from before the foundation of the world. Indeed, in chapter 1, where we see God before the foundation of the world choosing us in Christ, all of the, a part of that choosing and predestining included the good works that he intended for his people to walk in. For good works, he created us in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, sometimes we, we, we talk a lot about what we've been saved from. We've been saved from the wrath of God. We've been saved from the power of sin. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. But we don't talk as much sometimes about what we've been saved for. Well, here's an aspect of it. We've been saved for good works. He's saved us and given us new spiritual life so that we can live out His heart, His desires, His values in this world. And I love the way he wraps this up. He says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And if you're paying any attention to what we've just read, you should remember that he started this passage with that very same language, speaking about those who were spiritually dead, walking in the ways of the, the flesh, the ways of the world, right? This ties in verse 2. He said, we walked in the trespasses and sins of our former deadness. And so our spiritual biography here is bookended by descriptions of how we walk, that is how we live, how we make decisions, how we go about our lives before and after we were brought to spiritual life in Christ. So after a sinner is resurrected by God's grace and united to Jesus Christ, he now walks in a new way. Romans chapter 6, again, we, we say this first when we do baptisms. We say, buried with Christ in his baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. 
It's what this means. When we're raised with Christ, we live in a new way. We walk in a new way. We speak a new language. Our heart loves a, a, a new treasure. We walk in His ways. These are the good works that God has prepared for us to do. You might remember 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul is speaking of uh, the, the, the body as a temple of the Holy Spirit and calling, calling us to, to be holy in the way we, we conduct ourselves. And he says at the end of that uh, chapter, because you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. You belong to Jesus Christ now. Because you were dead and he made you alive, you're his. Your life is his. You are obligated to follow him and to obey him and to glorify him. And the great good news of all this is that that's what we long to do now anyway. Those who have been resurrected by the grace of God and given new spiritual life in him desire to follow him and obey him and glorify him. We belong to him. Here's a caution for us here. I think we need to make sure that we never let the reality of grace recognizing this is all God's work and that God forgives us our, our sins and cleanses us, never let the reality of grace result in complacency or in sort of spiritual negligence. We can talk about grace in such a way that it's like, you know what, if I fall, if I sin, it's not the big deal because God's going to forgive me anyway, right? And so there's kind of this very uh, cavalier attitude we might adopt about sin and that doesn't at all comport with somebody who's been given new life in Christ. Only someone who misunderstands or abuses grace will become comfortable in their sin. God will forgive me anyway, it doesn't really matter what I do, is not the posture of a sinner saved by grace. So we need to be careful that as we celebrate God's grace, that we don't come about it or speak of it in such a way that minimizes the importance of obedience. Because... Paul reminds us here, this is the very reason that he saved you. He saved you for good works that he's prepared beforehand for you to walk in them. So this should cause us to look forward, to look forward at the pathway that God has placed before us to love others and to glorify God. You were dead. God made you alive and your life is his. You belong to him. Friends, if you belong to Jesus Christ, this is your story. If you've turned from your sin and turned toward Him in faith, it is the sure evidence of God's redeeming work in your life. If you are in Christ and you're believing in Him even now, you can be sure that's God at work in you. And you can praise God and thank Him that He's given you that grace. And it provides the confidence to trust Him for the future and to keep walking in new life. If you've never turned to Jesus Christ for salvation, or if you aren't sure, then don't delay. You're currently living under the promise of God's coming wrath. But it's not too late to turn and to welcome Him as Savior and Lord, to make this your story too. So that you could say with all the saints, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. This is God's grace in us. Let's pray together.